Welcome to the Innovate CT Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Innovate CT Podcast. And I'm excited to announce that for this episode, we actually have a guest host, Rana Arshad Haviz, an educator and community worker here in Connecticut for over 20 years. She'll be guest hosting a variety of podcasts for Innovate Connecticut over the upcoming weeks and months, and we're super excited to have her be part of the show. This episode features Jackie Heffman, Board of Ed member for the Stanford Public Schools. Good morning, Ms. Heffman. Thank you so much for um, being part of this endeavor where we are putting together a series of podcasts for which, uh, where we would be talking about public education in the state of Connecticut. Um, you've been a board member for a very long time. You've been a community member here, engaged in many different ways for a long time. So um, if you could start a little bit about, uh, you know, if you could talk a little bit about that and then your engagement mm-hmm. specifically in public schools uh, as a Stanford Board of Ed member. Good morning. Thank you very much for asking me to be a part of this uh, project. I appreciate it. So I've been a board member for, this is my 10th year. I'm a longtime Stanford resident. I raised both of my sons. My husband and I raised both of our sons in Stanford. They went through the Stanford Public Schools, graduated and are successful and have families and actually are part of the success story of children who were raised, born and raised in Connecticut and actually came back to raise their families. That's so, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were so very happy about that. So they both live in Connecticut? Yes. yes, they both live in Connecticut with uh, their families, so we're lucky to have our grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And I expect that some of my grandchildren already are in public school, and I expect that all of them will eventually That's be great. public school mm-hmm. students. So it's been a... Um, a real honor for me to be on the Board of Ed and serve the uh, larger Stanford Public School community for all these years. I had the pleasure for seven years of working in the system before I was on the board. I was a um, paraprofessional, and I did a reading program with first graders who were not reading ready. Mm-hmm. And so that seven-year period gave me a really good understanding mm-hmm of what kind of a system we have, how the kids are educated, and what we need to do to move kids along. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's been a learning process. It always is. Hopefully mm-hmm. we're always learning continually. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just trying to make my contribution. I believe in public education, but I also believe very strongly in giving back to the communities that we live in. So. Mm-hmm. So I was a teacher in Stanford Public Schools too, and um, I am, and I worked in other places in Connecticut. Um, Stanford is a very unique community, even though it is urban. It has traits of being suburban, and certainly when I started living here about twenty-five years ago, it was more suburban than it is mm-hmm. now. And also, um, it also has the makings of a large city. And at the same time, it has that very much the neighborhood feel. And it is not like a Bridgeport or New Haven, which right. are some of our other districts. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, I feel Stanford Public Schools are a very unique place. And and th- this gives them an opportunity to do some seminal work. Like, you know, they could be doing work which could be, which could be a beacon for other districts, particularly urban districts in other parts of the nation. I would say that, you know, we have all the kind of the right things mm-hmm. going on here in Stanford. I agree. 
But unfortunately, and, um, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but we haven't seen that kind of progress happen in Stanford Public Schools uh, for a long time. Um, By progress, what, what yeah, do you Yeah, so that would right. be, so, um, like, you know, so that would bring us to, actually, the first thing I would like to talk about is, so, like, for example, the big buzzword in education is these days innovation, mm-hmm. right? And many times we see that innovation, at least in Connecticut, seems to be um, something which is taken up more by the suburban districts. And I always think about that, that why is it harder for urban districts to think about education differently and in a more innovative way? Uh, And many times when we think of innovation, we are only thinking of technology, but really not about turning the whole thing um, in a different way. Um, So so that's what I meant by progress, that, you know, things being done very differently to get dramatic results. Um, Well, you know, it's for me, the question is, are we educating children? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily are we using innovative methods or not, but are we succeeding in our mission to educate children who can survive and be productive citizens and give back to their communities once they finish school? So when you say that it's easier to have innovation in suburban districts, my immediate reaction to that is naturally it would be easier. Mm -hmm. You have students that are all homogeneous. You have much smaller systems. You have the ability to react much quicker to certain situations. And it just becomes much easier. If you look at urban districts, because of the size of urban districts, because of the funding that urban districts get, which is not nearly enough to overcome the effects of poverty and the other things that get in the way of children's learning. Um, it's, it's a whole different ball game as far as I'm concerned. Educating urban children is vastly different. So that, you know, that is an important point that you made. But so um, I was recently reading this book by Tony Wagner called Most Likely to Succeed. And he talks a lot about that if we do not, you know, one of the biggest issues in education is actually equity issues. Right. So he he reiterates the point that actually innovation must happen more rapidly in urban districts. And he does give examples, say, in New York City or Boston, where, you know, where a lot of interesting work is happening, that what can we do to learn from that? And uh, we don't see those pockets of um, excellence all over the country, but certainly we can. So how do you think about the work that's being done in Stanford in the light of those kinds of things? Well, I think that when you talk about equity, there is no um, other urban district, I believe, in the state of Connecticut that has focused more on equity mm-hmm. than Stanford has. I mean, we, um, we made sure 50, 60 years ago when desegregation happened mm-hmm. that we were going to have schools that looked like the district, mm-hmm. that we weren't going to have downtown schools and uptown schools that we and so when you 
because of our, what I call it the 10% rule, and not everybody understands that, but we have a policy in Stanford that says that no one school can be at a balance more than 10% of the district average. Mm -hmm. What that means is, mm -hmm. is that when you go into any school, it's going to look, the students that you see are going to look like they do in all the other schools. So that the funding that children get Mm -hmm. The school itself gets is going to be more fair. It's going to be focused more funding for those children that need it. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is a very important equity mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. I also think that with our new superintendent and the new strategic plan that we've adopted, which is a five-year plan, which is a focus on mind, body, and heart, mm -hmm. that we're always talking about equity. Unfortunately, the funding that we sometimes need, because you and I both know that mm -hmm. to, in order to overcome the effects of poverty, you need to spend vast sums more mm -hmm. than, yeah, absolutely. than the average. Yeah, and that's what they did in Massachusetts and Boston yes, and New they, York. Right. You know, actually, and, right. you know, in Massachusetts, it became the other way around. You know, they were so well-funded. Right. The kids in the urban districts had so many more resources that, you know, all yes. the parents, they became the most attractive. I mean, school. that's what the CGF lawsuit was all about. Right. Of which so, Stanford yeah. was a founding mm -hmm. member in mm -hmm. that. Uh -huh. And unfortunately, the governor, who was part of that founding of right. the CGF coalition, uh -huh. had a turnaround when he became governor. And so... The CGF lawsuit, unfortunately, was, you know, the courts didn't side with CGF. And yet, when you look at the vast differences in the way we fund education across the state, how you come to a conclusion that it is fair is just beyond me. So you yeah. are, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, you are in, you have been on that part of that for a right. very long time, right. uh, and you sit on the state committee for that. Right. So probably you're the best person to mm -hmm. answer this question. So what what is your take on on the fact that you know there are so many different voices because the income disparity is so deep in the state of Connecticut, which many people don't know, that what is the responsibility of affluent districts? to be able to fund the districts, and why is it important to fund mm. the districts which may not have adequate funding? Well, in this state, the districts that don't have adequate funding are the urban districts, for mm -hmm. the most part. Mm -hmm. If our urban centers fail, the state fails. Mm -hmm. I mean, the vast majority of children who are educated in this state live in the urban districts. Mm -hmm. Are the suburban districts important? Everybody's important. Everybody mm -hmm. has to spend what is a fair amount to educate their children. Mm -hmm. But if you live in a wealthy suburban district, mm -hmm. your town is better equipped to fund education without much support from the state mm -hmm. than the urban districts are that have low uh, mill, you know, have low uh, grand lists that mm -hmm. have a lot of non-taxable property on their books. Mm -hmm. The disproportionate way that we, especially since it's based on property taxes, right. uh -huh. it's totally disproportionate. It doesn't make sense. And mm -hmm. so if you're in a suburban district that's wealthy, you should be saying to yourself, it's just as, it's as important for me to make sure that the urban districts survive because I'm part of a state. 
Mm -hmm. I'm not by myself in whether it's Greenwich or New Canaan or if the state doesn't succeed, my town isn't going to succeed either. Mm -hmm. And so it needs to be a partnership. Talk a little bit more about your experiences on CJEP that has caught so much of national attention. And unfortunately, as you said, you know, in spite of all the voices that spoke yes. for it, we were on the, right. you know, the Supreme Court has ruled that it, the, the funding is adequate. Yes. So talk it, it about was, It's just shocking. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it I, I still can't get my head around it. It, it um, is so short-sighted. And it all just comes down to money. Mm-hmm. what what the state can afford. Mm-hmm. And in other states that have done education reform, mm-hmm. it they have found the money. Mm-hmm. If it means raising taxes, it means raising taxes, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't do it, mm-hmm. you who suffers? The mm-hmm. whole state suffers. Mm-hmm. And so it's been very discouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now, CJF is trying to figure out what its next steps will be, and it's probably going to turn to advocacy mm-hmm. and, you know, lobby and advocate in Hartford for it. But as long as the state still remains so in the hole, budget-wise, mm-hmm. it's going to be very difficult for the legislature to set aside, it, unless it takes money away from some districts to give it to other districts. And that's what the governor tried to do, but the legislature did not pass it. didn't pass it. And so, I mean, we all have to realize that we're in the same boat. Mm-hmm. And for all of us to succeed, we all have to share in mm-hmm. that happening. We have to give up something in order to w- get something of much greater value. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit, since you have so much experience and you know this community and Connecticut ed- public education so well, talk a little bit about the relationship of the State Department of Education and the local boards of education, specifically in terms of Stanford? Well, I think that it's important that the state board hold the local boards accountable for delivering instruction. However, sometimes they're in the way rather than helping. Mm -hmm. There's way too many unfunded mandates that come down on local Mm -hmm. districts. Some of that is by the legislature. Some of it is from the State Department of Education. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to be partners, Mm -hmm. but there has to, I believe, there needs to be a stronger voice from the local level and less of a voice from the state. Mm -hmm. So when you think about educational reform at a state level, how would that, what would that look like in terms of a stronger voice at the local level? And, you know, because, and that is the right approach because there are, you know, each district has has its own unique character and, you know, the, the board knows mm-hmm. best how to serve its kids. Right. So um, how would you envision that relationship? Well, it's, you know, I go to State Board of Education meetings and... I don't feel that the local voice is necessarily the one that's that holds sway. I think that there's too much special interest mm-hmm. that comes into it in the discussion, and there's not enough local voice. So when the State Department of Education decided that 
the Common Core was going to be the way Connecticut went. Mm-hmm. The local districts didn't have any say-so in whether that was mm-hmm. okay to do. Mm-hmm. It was just from now on, we're going with the Common Core, and you now have to take all of your curriculum and align it to mm-hmm. the Common Core. Well, that cost us millions of dollars to do. We mm-hmm. had to retrain all of our staff. We had to redo all of our curriculum. They and I and to the, to what end? Mm-hmm. Because our students have to learn what they need to learn. We have to test them, but we don't have to test them as often as we do. And we at the local level need should be able to decide what makes the most sense, how often we want to test our kids or or um, when, you know, when it's working and when things are not working. They may work in Stanford. They don't work in another district. Mm-hmm. And so we need a little bit more flexibility in how we educate our children. So the two important things that you raised here, one was testing mm-hmm. and the standards. So... Um, how do you think that has impacted Stanford? If are you able to speak about that specifically, like in like you know, uh, you did mention that adopting the Common Core, but were they more was that useful, beneficial for the students? Except probably they were unfunded mandates right. to train all the teachers. Well, the only problem is is that the um, at the federal level. So much has changed, which makes the Common Core not necessarily where it, where we should be. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's too many changes in education at the top that then the bottom is supposed to administer, mm-hmm. and they just need to leave us alone and mm-hmm. let us go about the job of educating all children mm-hmm. and stop changing how we're doing things and when we're doing things and just let it B, let the local level decide more about how it wants to deliver what what the performance standards should be. Because we know that in order for children to be productive and to graduate from high school and go out into the world, we know what they need to know. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to keep changing that. We don't. It, it's mm-hmm. just education just seems to be, uh, it's not just education. If you're, you want instant gratification, mm-hmm. and I don't think that we allow things to happen granularly. I mm-hmm. think that we look for a magic bullet, mm-hmm. and that magic bullet usually isn't there. It, mm-hmm. the, what works mm-hmm. is an excellent teacher standing in front of a classroom, mm-hmm. and that's all. I mm-hmm. mean, as a lot of the, the other stuff is frills, is extras, but in the end result, it's a good teacher who knows how to deliver instruction, who has the talents to raise the level of the kids in that class, whether that classroom is outside on the lawn or inside of a 21st century new building, has millions of computers, has no computers. It's all just the basic is that teacher. That's what's the most important thing. So that actually is a nice segue to my next question. And you yourself have been in the classroom. You've been a parent. You understand the educational system in a very unique way because 
you also pay a lot of attention to the process of education, the human process mm -hmm. of education. And you just mentioned, um, you talked about teacher efficacy. So, um, so if you could uh, elaborate on that a, li a little bit, you know, what do you mean by a good teacher, and how do we recruit good teachers, and what, is, how do we evaluate good teachers? How we, how do we g take teachers who are in our classrooms? good teachers, how did we make them great teachers? Well, there is best practice. There is scientific um, evidence for what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And we have to constantly make sure that our teachers are receiving the professional development they need to be the best at what they do. We have to make sure that we support them in every way that we can. We have to make sure that class size remains at a reasonable level so that they can deliver di differentiated instruction. And we have to respect the teaching profession, mm -hmm. which is not what's commonly out there now. Mm -hmm. The teaching profession has taken a tremendously negative hit, mm -hmm. especially around all of the testing, mm -hmm. because testing a child and having that test show that a child needs, it isn't performing, doesn't mean that the teacher is bad. There are lots of things, lots of parameters around why children aren't learning. I recently um, was watching something on television and uh, a, psycholog a psychologist who wrote, I can't think of his name at the moment, it escapes me, but he wrote a book and his thinking is that when children are not performing. You don't say to a child, what in the world is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. What you say to a child is, what happened to you? Mm -hmm. How has your life been that mm -hmm. brought you to this point where you find we, we, the teacher, and you, the child, find yourself in a situation where you're not able to learn? What mm -hmm. happened to you? Get, try to get to the root of that issue. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, mm -hmm. you'll break through a lot of the barriers if you understand where children are coming from. So that takes a lot of professional development. That takes a lot of focus in helping teachers to understand what they need to do to help children. Mm -hmm. So when you're in a classroom, what helps you say You've, you, I know that you visit classrooms mm -hmm. a lot and schools a lot, and you've been in school. What is it that tells you that this teacher is effective? So for me, it's a lot of it is the, is the environment in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? What, what is up on the walls? What is the message that's coming out from that classroom? You know mm -hmm. when you walk in whether you feel, wow, this is a great atmosphere or this is cold. You get that immediate reaction. Mm -hmm. And then as you sit there, how is that teacher interacting with mm -hmm. children? You know, the teaching model has changed over the years. You know, when I went to school, when you went to school, the teacher stood up in front of the room for a half hour, 40 minutes, and it was direct, delivered from the teacher. Mm -hmm. and the student just sat there. Mm -hmm. That's not the way education is anymore. Mm -hmm. Now the teacher may spend 15, 10, 15 minutes. That's it. The rest of the time... That teacher is working with children mm -hmm. directly mm -hmm. in groups. Mm -hmm. 
And so you get that sense. Where is that teacher? Is that teacher walking around the room? Is that teacher focusing on children? Are they coming up to a child, putting a hand on a shoulder? You, you just, mm-hmm. you get that sense. You can feel it in mm-hmm. a classroom. It's not just the test score. Mm-hmm. So how, what can a school district do to ensure that we get some of the best teachers? You, you did talk a little bit about the teaching profession, and I could not agree with you more. I always say that there are two jobs that I have done where everyone else seems to know my job better than I do being a mom and being a teacher. Like, you know, people don't know what it, but they'll come in and tell you, oh, this is how, you know, it mm-hmm. has taken. Teaching profession is not respected. Right. People think, even in, you know, administration and... They think uh, it's easy. Yeah, and yeah. people from the corporate world will come and tell you how to run public schools. Right. But, right. you know, and there is value in learning. And, you know, teachers learn from all mm-hmm. around. But what can we do to ensure that we do hire some of the best talent, right, from the top to the, you know, to the well, we, teachers Well, we the hope that when we hire somebody that we're hiring the best. Mm-hmm. You know, in Connecticut, it takes four years before you can, at the end of the fourth year before you get tenure. Principals have to be very focused on those four years mm-hmm. and not give tenure to teachers that they feel are not teaching so that kids can learn. And that takes a lot of time and effort on the part of principals and assistant principals. They need to be in the classroom all the time. We have to free up our administrators from the paperwork, which is the reason why we instituted administrative assistance in a lot of our schools, so that we could, because it's vitally important for a principal and assistant principal to be in the classroom, helping teachers be the best that they can be. They need that support. Mm-hmm. And we have to be conscientious about how we evaluate teachers. And so in f- after four years, you can tell whether a, a person has that innate quality that's going to... Because I think it is innate. I don't think w- you, can you can learn can you from a, a book how to be a good teacher. I, it's, it's not all of it. Some of it comes from educating, you know, comes from the schools and you have to be a good student to get your degree, got to have a master's. You have, but I really strongly believe that there's an innate quality in a person that mm-hmm. makes them a good teacher. And it's hard to really, you have to have infinite patience. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's number one. Mm-hmm. You have to care. You have to be an extremely caring person. Mm-hmm. You have to be f- interested in your students and focused on not just them but their family you know what is their environment like how, you have to cut, you have to try to understand how what their life is like mm-hmm. that's not easy when you have 22 or 25 kids mm-hmm. but I think that the teachers that are really the good teachers are the ones that care they treat their child their students like their own children and they don't look at color and they don't look at ethnicity and they don't, you know, for them a child is somebody who's, it's their responsibility. And there are so many really good teachers that do that. And we just have to be focused on making sure that we have more of those. Yeah, and I do, I strongly also believe that, and you know, I've I've been part of Stanford system for a long time and, you know, even though I don't work with Stanford system, 
right now that I've seen over the years how teachers have been burnt out, you yeah, know, amazing teachers. Yeah, job. it is a tough job. So People don't appreciate it. It is a very difficult job. So I would like to talk about another important thing you raised in your um, just now. You know, Stanford Public Schools is an extremely diverse community. Yes. I would actually argue it one of the <laughs> most diverse communities. In the country. In not the just country, in absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, and there is a lot of conversations about the diversity of the school staff, like, you know, mm. teachers, administrators, paraprofessionals, right. or, you know, why do students see only right. certain ethnicities or in a certain role? And, you know, how does that impact a child's education? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it does impact. I, I think it is important for children to see um, in their teachers people who look like them. Mm -hmm. um, and we're always striving to increase our diversity in, in our teaching staff and in our administrators. It is extremely difficult. First of all, the numbers of graduates from the education schools in, of diversity is not very high. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the cost of living in this area, not just Stanford, but in the whole of Fairfield County, it's very difficult. So we, we have to constantly think about innovate. When you talk about innovation, that's where we could come up with some innovative ideas for helping teachers find housing and mm. support. You know, also another way is to grow our own, to encourage our own graduates who have family support systems already here that they can come back from college and move in with an aunt or an uncle or a parent mm -hmm. because that's a real barrier here. Mm -hmm. It is an extreme barrier, the cost of living. Um, but we're always looking for diversity in our teaching staff. So when we think about diversity in teaching, it's, you know, companies like Google, Amazon, you know, they think about diversity. So mm -hmm. it's the, the moral, ethical thing to do. But it's also important for survival because, you know, in this complex world where, you know, we are really a global economy, uh, it is impossible to function for, a, right. for anybody who's isolated and who doesn't understand other That's people. what makes the system, our, makes our diversity what makes our system so mm -hmm. attractive. Mm -hmm. And... It should be what people are looking for, not what they're running away from. Mm -hmm. Because when our graduates go to college or go out into the world, they know what the world looks like. They know how to behave in diverse settings because they've, they've lived it for all of their school years. It's a huge advantage. So when we think about diversity, it's also what do you think besides being able to communicate and work with different people. What are the assets of diversity to a school system and how can we make sure that we make use of those assets to grow as a system? You know, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said it's something that should be attracting us and not something right. we should be running away from. So what does that bring besides just being able to live with, um, you know, being able to interact and live with a certain group of people or a diverse group of people. Well, but that is, the, that is what's the most important thing, I believe, being able to speak to people and understand where they're coming from mm -hmm. who look different mm -hmm. than I look or you look. And, and, I mean, that's, for me, that's 
that's what diversity is. Diversity is being able to understand where other people are coming from, different opinions, different mm-hmm. backgrounds, different food, different clothing. Diff- but to be able to say it's okay to not be a person who is prejudiced against somebody else just because of the way they look. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you have to be able to understand and, and be part of and have friends that look different from you and whose families are different. And yeah, it's not just going to school, but it's also being friends out of school and going to family functions and going to sporting events and, and just, yeah, it's, it's a mindset it's diversity of yeah. thought, as yeah, they say. It's, you know, you, exactly. you, it brings it back. You're right. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. it's hard to put into words, but I think it's easy to live mm-hmm. when you are in that kind of a system. It becomes just second nature. You don't really even think about it. Mm-hmm. You just you don't. You know, I would hope that our students don't say to themselves, is it okay for me to bring this child home from school with me? Or, I mean, that's just, it's, it should be just natural. So um, one last closing question. What is it that excites you about the work you do? It's long hours. It's yeah. one of the most <laughs> thankless jobs being a board of ed member, yeah. you know. Um, you were here till almost yeah. 11.30 last yes. night. So, yeah, so what is it? That keeps you going. It's been 10 years. Yeah, it had. But what keeps me going is knowing that the work that we put in has a meaning, that children are better than they were 10 years ago, that we're educating children differently but in a better way, and children are moving up the achievement level, Mm -hmm. and they're... Well, how else can I say it? We look at the new accountability um, stuff that we mm-hmm. had at the board meeting last mm-hmm. night. And now we're talk, we talk more about growth than we do about mm-hmm. um, you know, one year to the next year. Mm-hmm. And just looking at the data that we saw last night that shows that we are outpacing the state in our growth, mm-hmm. those kinds of things excite me. Mm-hmm. because we're doing what we need to do. We're focusing on education. I'm excited because we have a new superintendent and everything that he brings. Um, yeah, it's just making a difference, I think, and seeing that the hours that you put in because of the people, the professionals and the teachers, the administrators that we have in this system, we are doing what we need to do for kids. And hopefully with this new strategic plan that we have in effect, We'll do it for more children than we're doing now because we still don't, you know, it's not 100%, and that's the number we strive for. Yeah. it's uh, Thank you so much for taking the time, and thank you for serving the community in this way, Ms. Heffman, because, you know, most people, I don't know if they understand that being a Board of Ed member is actually probably two jobs, if not, you know, yeah. people think it's just, you know, you show up, it, it is so much work that goes into it. And, you know, I really admire people who step up to s- serve the community in that manner. 
So thank you so much. Anything else you would like to add? No, I think that's all. I just encourage anybody who's out there listening, if they have an interest in public education, to volunteer and be on their board of ed because it does it does make a difference. Yeah. Okay. We need people to stand up and be part of the solution. Yep, absolutely. Thank you for asking me to join you. Thank you so much. If you would like to get involved with Innovate CT, please visit our website at www.innovatect.org. There, you can find links to our social media. We currently are active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and hope to hear from you soon. Thank you.